0: Welcome back to Lights Inside the Tunnel, a podcast where we talk about what social justice looks like in the time of social distancing. I'm your host, Fiona, and this is episode four, QVA. Um, I just want to give you a heads up before you start this uh, episode. The audio is a little funky, not really sure what happened. Um, you can still hear everything a little fine, but there's just air and background noises a little bit more than there normally is, so I want to apologize for that. Um, I tried to take care of it where I could, but editing audio is not always easy, so thanks for your patience. Hi everybody, so with finals upon us, um, I wanted to do something a little bit different, a little bit more of a casual episode where I just answer some of the questions that you guys had um, for us on social media um it'll be a little bit shorter um and yeah before we get started i just do want to say that i am in no way an expert on any of these topics i am just a person with a passion for social justice um and i'm really lucky to continuously be learning and to be held accountable by activists and movements and all the good and the light that there is in the world. So, you know, be patient with me, give me grace, um, you know, and let's just have a good conversation. So, our first question today has to do with what's happening in the world right now. Um. The question is, what can be done to facilitate social justice within the scope of coronavirus testing? So, to be completely honest, um, there is so much news right now. I feel like I am definitely not <laughs> the best person to answer this question just because um, I worry about not having all of the information, and I would hate to put something out there that is untrue or is not, um, supported by our scientists and our doctors. What I will say, though, is I think that if we want to have a conversation about social justice and access, um, and availability of testing kits, um, I think the conversation that we should really look at and have is about asking ourselves, um if our healthcare system is one that was meant to perform justice and take care of people um because access to testing feels much more sim- um symptomatic of problems with the system itself yeah um you know the issue with the american healthcare system and Again, I am not an expert in this, so um, I'm going to be kind of brief here because I want to stick to what I know is true and I don't want to get into a ton of policy that I'm not well educated on. But what I do know is that we have among developed countries, we have some of the highest insurance, ra- um, uninsured rates. And we also have some of the highest out-of-pocket payments, and part of that is due to the fact that our healthcare system is privatized, um, as opposed to a lot of other um, European countries and then countries like South Korea and Japan, which have a more universal form of healthcare. And again, I think this comes down to a question of values, right? Like, do... Fundamentally, do we as a society see healthcare as a privilege or as a right? And um, we, in our system, healthcare is a privilege, it's not a right. And I think that that is part of why we are seeing such disparities and problems with getting access to coronavirus testing. Um, if you want to see a system that has treated healthcare as a right instead of a privilege, I would definitely Google um, South Korea coronavirus, South Korea healthcare system, South Korea coronavirus testing, um, because you will see the ways in which, you know, when the health of every single person in a community, in a country, is prioritized, um, you will see what that looks like, and it looks like uh, how South Korea has responded. Now, that's not to say that, um, all systems with a more universal form of healthcare have been perfect. Um, you know, <laughs> this disease does not discriminate against healthcare systems. Um, but the I got a notification on my phone about an hour ago that was saying that you know with officially a million cases, the U.S. is now clearly the center of this pandemic, um, and. I think a lot of that has to do with our healthcare system, um, and the only and to kind of bring it back to the initial question is um, the the only way in which we are able to safely go back to our normal lives is with increased access to tests, and that is just not there right now, um, and it's not there because of the way our system functions. So if, you know, while this might change for the short term, if we want this to never happen again, or we, you know, decide that, oh, well yeah, maybe healthcare is a right and not a privilege. Um, we need to change the system. Okay, so our next question is, what is one social justice issue that you think is being overlooked? So this is such an important question. Um, In our conversations about social justice, we often leave out Indigenous communities, and especially in a time when we're talking about the fact that families belong together, specifically in regards to the fact that the federal government was separating immigrant children from their parents. Um, we also need to remember the fact that Native families belong together. So, there's this law called the Indian Child Welfare Act, which was passed in 1978, and it basically stipulates that if a Native American child is put up for adoption, that they will either be placed within the home of another family member, or within another family in their tribe. If neither of those options are viable, the child is placed in another Native home. And this law was passed because there was a federal Indian adoption project, which was a very racist policy um, that looked to destabilize Native communities by targeting children. Um, Three out of ten Native children were separated and placed within um, the homes of white families under this project. Um, And not only did this take away tribal sovereignty, but it also had really negative effects on Indigenous children. And it's also important to remember that when you target the children of a community, you are not only targeting some of the most vulnerable members, but you are also targeting the future of that community. So it, it was it, the intention behind it was to destabilize. Um, also, I want to point out here that in the United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Rights, it says that Native communities have a right to keep their families together and a right over their political status and self-determination, which just goes to show that, like, these violations of those rights have been happening for a very long time. I bring this up because in 2018, a U.S. district court in Texas held that ICWA was unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, If you don't know what the Equal Protection Clause is, and there's a lot of different clauses, so I know it gets confusing, basically it just holds that, um, all people have to be treated equally under the law, that the law can't discriminate. Um, And asserted that ICWA was discriminatory because it mandated who could and who could not um, adopt native children. This is significant because the groups behind promoting and advocating for the unconstitutional, unconstitutionality of ICWA um, are big money, oil lobbyist groups, that um want to dismantle the rights of sovereign nations um so it's important to also point out that the federal government um, as principal holds that it was not unconstitutional Native American tribes um four were uh, included in this lawsuit, they hold that it's not unconstitutional, and so do many child welfare advocacy groups, and that's because it is not racially based it's a question of citizenship it's basically just saying that you know if children are themselves citizens of a tribe or they're born to parents who are citizens of a tribe um, and thus would qualify for citizenship um, that the tribe has as much right to dictating where that child goes um, and has sovereignty over the child in the welfare system. Now the danger with finding ICWA unconstitutional is that it sets a judicial precedent that could then be applied to say that all laws meant to protect Native Americans, tribes, and their sovereignty are racially based when in reality they are citizenship based. and therefore they are discriminatory and uh, should not be allowed to stand underneath the 14th amendment. So, There's actually a lot of big money groups within the country that wants this to happen, specifically um, people in the oil industry, and that's because some of the largest collections of oil are located within um, indigenous nations. Indigenous communities have the right to regulate what is on their property, um, and these big money groups, these big oil corporations want unfettered and unrestricted access to oil, um, so they want to dismantle tribal sovereignty. So, this summer, a federal court actually heard the appeal and held that ICWA was constitutional, um, basically undoing the ruling of, the lower district court however the federal court of appeals is rehearing the case right now and there is a high likelihood that this case will actually be taken to the supreme court so while the federal court hearing did initially affirm the a decision that was just to children to indigenous communities to children of indigenous communities um this is far from over this is an important social justice issue um one because like i said before um, people just aren't talking about this in the public discourse But then secondly, because it's a question of what we as a society value, you know, do we value corporations and unfettered profit and greed? um, Or do we value the lives of people who are telling us what is best for them, for their children, for their communities, and specifically of a community that has been historically oppressed by our federal government? Um, Yeah, so I, I think that when we talk about social justice issues, um, we should always be looking at uh, how how everything affects um, our brothers and sisters in the indigenous communities around us, and then specifically look at um, ways in which indigenous communities are still being targeted today by whether that be by corporations or the federal government. <laughs> So our next question asks, do you have any tips for compassion while discussing politics? Um, I think this is a really interesting question in the sense that a lot of times um, people say, you know, oh, it's just politics, it's not personal. Um, I fundamentally disagree with that statement. I think so much about politics is so inherently personal, and I think that if you are a person that can assert that, you know, politics doesn't affect you regardless of who's elected, um, you know, you're coming from a place of real privilege. And um, I think we have to realize that for a lot of people, um, elections are life and death issues. I say that because I think when politics is very personal, it can make it really hard to have conversations with people who disagree with you, but those conversations are also so important in the sense that, you know, maybe you might be able to, like, allow someone to see your perspective from it. Um, So for me, when I'm talking with someone who I disagree with, um, especially if I think this person is coming from um, an uneducated place or maybe, you know, their position feels hateful in some way, Um, I like to start by approaching it through as a listener first and as someone who's asking questions, really just like I'm doing research or something, like I'm trying to figure out what the motivation is behind it. You know, I just ask a lot of questions like, oh, oh, why do you say that? Oh, well, like, what makes you think that? Oh, what life experience, you know, contributed to that? And eventually, by asking those questions, you kind of get down to the core of it. And I think a lot of times, especially when someone is espousing, um, you know, a a hateful or um, problematic sentiment, a lot of times it's rooted in fear or insecurity or misinformation. Um, And I think that, you know... By really getting to what the root of the cause of that thought is, a lot of times, you know, you can have a more honest conversation afterwards because you know where they're coming from, right? And it's it's different from just saying like, well, you're wrong. At least in my experience, when I'm talking to someone who they know I disagree with them, but I'm really putting forward an effort to listen and to understand them and see where they're coming from. I think they feel validated and then they are much more receptive to my position, to my facts, to saying, oh, well, you know, like, actually, that's not true. You know, it might be easier or it might feel like that's true, but in reality, if we look at this and if we look at the data, like, all of this says no. Um, Yeah, and I think it's also, in a way, it's leading by example, right? Like, as someone who um, believes in social justice, um, I believe that all people have humanity, and I believe in compassion and respect, and I want to give that to everyone, um, even if they don't give it to all other people. So there's two other points that I want to make in regards to this. Um, I think uh, talking about politics with people, um, it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act between compassion and bravery. Like, you can't be so compassionate that you're sacrificing everything you believe and you're not saying what you truly feel and that kind of thing. Um, because I also believe that we have all of us, especially people who, um, you know, want to have conversations about social justice issues and the intersection with that and politics, like, we shouldn't be talking about um, what is right and what is true and good. Um, so I think, I think you have to balance that out, and there's no easy mathematical equation which teaches you how to do that, but I think that, you know, you do that through just having these conversations, and again, just trying to see the humanity in everyone, that sounds so cliche, but it's true, yeah, and the one other point that I will make is that you don't have to have these conversations with people, you know, like, some people are just bigoted, hateful people who, you know, When you get to the root of it, like, or you can't get to the root of it because everything is just hatred and unkindness and, um, competition. And I just, you know, you don't have to have those conversations with people, you know. Um, conversations specifically about social justice are supposed to spark dialogue, are supposed to challenge people to want to do better, Um, to do, you know, what is right for all people instead of what's most right for them. Um, And some people just don't want that. Um, And I think that first, you know, in some situations, it's better just to not have those conversations for your own health, for your own safety. Um, You know, just put your head down and do the, do the work, do the advocacy, and then have the conversations with people that are open and receptive and, you know, willing to make that human connection with you. So the last question that I'm going to answer for this episode is this one. What are some ways that you think young people can become active in social justice causes? Um, I know that I've probably said this about every single question, um, but this is a great question. Um, and for me, this one's a great question because it's something that I wonder and, um, you know, it's, it's something that, that I think about, you know, what, how can I be doing more? Am I doing enough? What am I really even doing? Um, yeah. So, you know, I think the first, thing that everyone should do who's looking to get more involved in activism and advocacy and social justice is to think about an issue that is really close to your heart um you know take for example you know say you're really passionate about the climate and you want climate justice um I would recommend that you get in touch with a local organization that is doing advocacy and activism. Um there's Sunrise, the Sunrise Movement is a great organization and they have chapters all over the country and they even on their website like let you locate the closest chapter which is really cool. Um and the other really cool thing is that a lot of movements that are being y- led by young people there's this is all, a lot of this is happening online. You know not in the sense that people are tweeting about things and posting things on their Instagram stories, but like people are meeting online and people are having conversations and people are organizing and planning things on there um so I think that's a great way to do it um I think reading is also really important um just to you know learn from. What other people have to say and what great leaders before us have done and how they did it. And then there's also really great how-to books for everything. Um, I like to plan things out pretty methodically, so I always kind of turn to reading first. But I, <laughs> to kind of counter that, I think sometimes the best way to do things is just to do them you know, um, especially if you're a college student, there's so many different groups and organizations on campus that are doing work and are, um, their mission statements align with, you know, whatever the cause that you've picked that's very um, close to your heart is, that, you know, just, just make connections and get involved in that way, and then figure out what you can do from there. Um, Yeah, having conversations is great, and then just, just, just going for it, you know. If you want, if you want to do something, get a couple people together and do it. You know, anyone can start a petition. Anyone can organize a phone bank drive for um, elected officials. Anyone can work on voter registration. The fundamental advice is is um, figure out what you're passionate about. Learn about what you're passionate about and do what you're passionate about. Um, And that might not be very tangible, but I think that the beauty of this is that it's up to you. So good luck. Thanks for asking. Thank you all so much for tuning into this episode. And a special thank you to all the people that submitted questions to be answered. They were all so profound and really wonderful. I had such a hard time picking which ones I was going to answer. And if I didn't get to yours today, because we did get a lot, I will be throwing those uh, questions to a guest in a future episode. Um, Speaking of which, we'll have a new episode out next Tuesday. So don't forget to listen then. Connect with Campus Ministry online on our social media accounts. And until then, stay safe, wash your hands, and tell people you love them. Talk soon.